any procrastinators? Yes, because none of you showed up to church until the middle of the second song. I really appreciate that. <laughs> We're going to look at procrastination real quick. I am a massive procrastinator. It is one of my spiritual gifts. Um, many of you know this. Certainly, those of you who are in the worship band know this. Um, so procrastination, to put off intentionally and habitually. I think I have that checked. And who's this? A, yeah. And to put off intentionally by the doing of something that should... To put off intentionally the doing of something that should be done. There's something inside of me that just says, now, nah, you know, that can wait. Um, I think a lot of that is tied into, uh, at least partially, the idealist in me. Um, there's, there's a whole lot of... I could totally totally can get that done, you know, tomorrow or the next day or minutes before class. Um, I also, in this vein, I love me some Myers-Briggs. I don't know if any of you guys do, but I am an INFP through and through. So we're going to have a little bit of get to know Dylan because I do, I do hide and that's part of my personality. So in that, the idea of idealism, we're going to look at INFP's personalities are true idealists always looking for the hint of good, even in the worst of people and events, searching for ways to make things better. I think that is definitely something that describes me. And so, further on, while they may be perceived as calm, reserved, or even shy, INFPs have an inner flame and passion that can truly shine. I think fewer of you know this, but... It is definitely true. That manifests itself in good ways and in bad ways sometimes. Um, So then our final note on INFPs. If they're not careful, INFPs can lose themselves in their quest for good and neglect the day-to-day upkeep that life demands. INFPs often drift into deep thought, contemplating the hypothetical and the philosophical more than any other type. I think... I mean, for you guys, that's, that's me in a nutshell. I think um, I have a very real ability to put while my mind wanders through possibility and future things. Um, however, I think uh, that maybe I can turn the tables on myself on this. And uh, in First Thessalonians, we find some things that can kind of uh, satisfy those if that ethereal longing for uh, for hope, for future glory, for for when things will be better, and and what part I can play in that. If there are any idealists around, I think we have some in here. We ha- we have some pessimists too, but I think there's something worthwhile here. I think there's something that we can find, um, and for our pessimists, maybe we can rub off on you guys a little bit, but. Uh, even though you doubt it. Um, we, can, we can kind of take this journey together this morning. Uh, there's definitely something for you guys here too. So we're going to make our way to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, if you want to find it and mark it. But um, actually, one of the fun things is with a lot of these um, letters of Paul and, and these epistles and stuff is that in Acts and, and stuff, we find kind of the outside view of what's going on here. So I'm going to to run to Acts and read a fairly uh, lengthy account 
fairly quickly to give us kind of that outside view, but we'll end up in First Thessalonians. I'm going to start in, whoo, there's First Thessalonians. Acts 17, I'm going to go uh, 1 through 13. There's stuff that I could cut out, but it would take more time to cut it out than actually just blow through it. So uh, I'm going to read in Acts 17, 1 through 13. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, which is what you do when someone says something at church you don't like. Um, They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd, out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They made, they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was uh, preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up, because they're really nice guys. Map, partially for the sake of mappage, and partially just to get kind of an idea of, of where and when this is happening. Um, at this point, this, this is Paul's second missionary journey. He had gone on one, and then he said, let's go back and check these guys out, see how they're doing. This is about A.D. 49 through 52. Um, so when he's around here, probably 49 to 50. Um, <clears throat> so he comes through Philippi. They have a great time there. Take a bunch of people off. And then they come down to Thessalonica. They get chased down to Berea. And then get chased out of Berea down <clears throat> the coast there. It's beautiful. Um, and we'll see how this goes. All right, we see there in Acts that the shock waves kind of of Paul's time there in, in Thessalonica um, followed both him and then I think we'll definitely see and have seen that it stayed there as well. It followed the Thessalonians. They had... Uh, kind of been left there to deal with the turmoil and the aftermath of this. If we look at this from Paul's angle, so he's coming from Philippi where he had good success preaching, but that success stirred up uh, some serious opposition. In his letter to the Thessalonians, he says uh, straight out that they had been treated outrageously in Philippi. Um, You know, if that's how you pronounce that. 
Now it happens again here in Thessalonica. And these guys go as far as to chase him down the coast and chase him out of the next town. And essentially, you know, cutting short his time there with, uh, with the Thessalonians. And uh, certainly shorter than he planned on being there. It says there in Acts that he spent three Sabbath days preaching, but I don't think that that necessarily means that he was only there for three weeks. I think what we find here in Thessalonians and what we'll see is the church is a little more stable than three weeks would have, would have given them, but he at least preached in synagogue three weeks. Um, and, and certainly the, whole po- the point is, it does, I don't care if he was there for two years or if he was there for three weeks, the point is he wasn't there long enough to complete these guys introduction into the Christian faith and and, and give them a total picture of what it looks like. So with Paul gone, the bad guys kind of turn their sights to the Thessalonians, um, to these new believers who are basically left hanging and haven't had that extended instruction. And he's kind of freaking out. He's like, I got to get back there. These guys are kind of in deep water. Um, it, It seemed like they were suffering some pretty severe persecution. He tries to get back there multiple times, he says in chapter 1. We're going to go ahead and make that transition back to First Thessalonians. Um, <clears throat> he says in chapter 1, Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. This is 17 and 18. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. I don't know exactly what that looks like for Satan to block your way, but through deep theological research I have come across this. I think it looks something like that. <laughs> Dennis Nedry with devil horns saying, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> he didn't say the magic word. That's the comic relief. This is why I couldn't make images of my slideshow, because you, you need the hand. All right. <laughs> Moving on. He's, okay, so eventually... He, he tries to go back. He tries to go back. It's not working. So eventually they, they just come to the point where they're like, all right, let's send Timothy back. Um, this is future state. Um, so they send Timothy back to check on them and see how, how this church is doing, essentially because he has a lower profile. He's not going to get caught. You, I mean, even before, they didn't even mention Timothy when they were like, they ushered Paul and Silas out of town. It's like, oh, uh, Timothy's like, oh, can I come? Um, so they send him back, and he reports back to Paul, and this report is incredibly encouraging. Um, so Paul's super excited, but there are some things that need addressed, and that's kind of what we're going to look at today. Um, Paul begins the letter. We're going to go a little bit of an overview so that we can get somewhere. This is not a whole series on Thessalonians, but it'll be good. He begins by thanking God at length uh, for the enduring faith of the Thessalonians amid persecution. They've been doing pretty well. His concern and subsequent relief uh, is effusive. It's explicitly fatherly. He says multiple times, you know, we treated you as, you know, a mother and a father. And, and, you know, you can tell just by the way that he's writing this letter that he cares deeply for these people. And um, part of that uh, is this interesting note here in in one nine. He says, surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. To this point, uh, working like that kind of hasn't 
been their, their standard operating procedure for Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Something about the way they, at least, uh, they saw something in, in at least some of these Thessalonians that's like, all right, we need to kind of set an example for these guys. We need to, you know, <clears throat> communicate the value of, of working with your own hands, working for your own, uh, and, and not kind of hang on to them. Um, more on that later, my procrastinators. Uh, in chapter 2 and 3, Paul continues his praise and encouragement of the Thessalonians for their endurance and hardship uh, and perse- of the persecution they're facing. And it's in chapter 4 that um, he kind of gets into the meat of what their issues are and what we can kind of uh, take what we can out of it. He turns to what they need to be reminded of uh, and some important clarification on what God expects of them. In verses, so we're in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, uh, we don't have to read it, but he calls them to holiness um, according to what they've been already taught. So he's taught them some, specifically in the area of sexual purity, um, which I think was relevant to them because there was sort of this gis- disconnect between the cultures and the history on this stuff. The Greeks and Romans were in that area. They never considered immoral the kinds of out-of-wedlock adventures and, and all sorts of stuff that, that the Jews and the Christians would have considered as breaking the seventh commandment. So Paul's having to address this isn't necessarily surprising. He does it fairly straightforwardly uh, and quickly. But jumping into the meat of what we're looking at, uh, 1 Thessalonians four eleven through 12. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that in your daily life you may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Now this issue doesn't seem too crazy on its own, but in a broader context, um, this issue of the Thessalonians working with their own hands it seems to be a fairly legit one, demanding that Paul address the issue actually several times with increasing fervor. The way he addressed it, he addressed it, like we said before, uh, in his example to them. He saw something right away that's like, I'm going to have to do some modeling here. <clears throat> he addressed it verbally. He just said in verse 11, as, as I told you while we were there, he addresses it in this letter. He addresses it here in 4 through 11. You guys need to be working with your own hands. And then he addresses it again later in 5, which we're going to look at as well. So then, actually, he goes, he lays into him pretty hard in 2 Thessalonians which is somewhat outside the scope of this, but it, it establishes the, uh, the pattern and the idea that these guys needed uh, some instruction and there was some reason that they were not, this was not clicking with them. Why are these guys kind of going and doing their own thing? Let's look at uh, 13 through 15. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. This brings us to our $2 word for the day, eschatology. Um, essentially, this is 
just the, the idea of the branch of theology concerning the death, or concerning death, the end of the world, or the ultimate destiny of humankind, specifically the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, which he's directly addressing here, and the, or the last judgment. Um, <clears throat> I think he does this for two reasons, and, and they're pretty specific. He's basically offering hope to these Thessalonians by completing that gospel narrative for them. Apparently, uh, in the time between when they became Christians and now, um, some people have died, and, and frankly, they're, they hadn't expected that. You know, um, one of the important things when, when, when thinking about this and why he had to come at it so directly is uh, in contrast to the Jewish and Christian understandings of, of life after death, uh, of afterlife, which were, you know, kind of optimistic. There's a God. He loves us. He created us. We're going back to him. The, um, <clears throat> the Greek concepts of, of life after death were very pessimistic. Um, and to top it off, uh, in, in Thessalonica in particular, these guys, uh, there's archaeological evidence that suggests that they had kind of a, a fascination with the concept of life after death, and um, they were really interested in it. So these guys, not having that complete teaching um, and, and knowing we're going to be okay, like there's a resurrection at the end of this where we all come back together, they're kind of freaking out. So I think Paul does a pretty good job of uh, bringing that back around for them. And, um, and for us, I think this is a frequently used funeral text, and it's, it's pretty obvious why. So after settling that part of it, Paul continues concerning Christ's return specifically. Um, we're going to do a butchered version of this just for brevity because I want to go home at some point today. Um, so we're going to look at five. One and two, four and five, eight through 11. Trust me, I didn't cut out anything too crazy. I just kind of streamlined it. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. But you, brothers and sisters, uh, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Jumping down to verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. The encouragement found there for those in Christ is is pretty strong. It kind of continues that same theme, but also in the beginning there, when he's talking about, uh, we don't need to be concerned about when this is happening. Like, this is not uh, the, the primary thing, because you know that you don't know. So the, the hope found in there for, for those that are in Christ is a primary goal there. But on the other hand, we still have the, we'll call them the procrastinating dreamers um, who, are, who are idle, who are kind of causing trouble with the fact that they're not 
doing anything and, and demanding that Paul give this attention. Um, so let's look real quick. We're going to do 12 through 14. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and, admonish, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. A lot of love there for the church leaders and, um, and those who, who are doing well. That's kind of the theme that we haven't touched too hard on. Uh, but, but just it's important to understand how proud of them Paul was and the ones who were doing well. And the fact that these guys who essentially are baby Christians who are um, largely Gentile and from that, that Greek influence are doing well. They're, they're, they're making it happen, and, and they were super excited about that. Um, so let's not lose this while I'm harping on the, on the idle ones. Um, but in light, going back to those, the, the whole reason that Paul, not the whole reason, but like we said, the other part of the reason that Paul broke down those eschatological issues um, that he addressed, it's worth considering that maybe... Uh, that misunderstanding that they were having is part of this issue uh, of these idle people, you know, the, these carefree attitudes towards work. Um, I think, actually, it seems that's pretty much the problem uh, when, you, when you research it. It's Christians not working to support themselves because they mistakenly believe that Christ is going to return in the near future. They're like, he's coming back. This is sweet. I'm just going to hang out. I'm going to do whatever I want. And it'll be great. Um, I mean, the fact that the warnings to these people occur like directly before the, uh, the end times, the, the second coming stuff that he says, and then directly after kind of point to that. Bringing it to us, um, I wonder if sometimes we have the same problem. Uh, maybe, maybe in the opposite direction. We, we have this idea that Christ's return is, is distant. Who knows, you know, when it's going to happen. I don't wake up every morning thinking, maybe, maybe it's today. It could be crazy. I don't think any of us wake up like that. Um, so the same word kind of applies to us. I think just because we, we have this tendency to swing to the other end of the spectrum doesn't mean uh, that it's not the same problem. I think we find pretty clearly that uh, what we believe about Christ's return, what we believe about the end times and the times that we're living in now, um, our eschatology, to use it again, um, it matters. I mean, whether we're conscious of it or not, it affects how we choose to go through each day, how we position ourselves to either pursue Christ or to put it off. You know, I think I do that a lot. It affects our mindset to either walk through the open door that we sense to, to talk to maybe an unbelieving friend about Christ, about that hope. You get the, eh, you know, there's always tomorrow. This beer is excellent, but we don't need to start talking about Jesus. Um, it affects how we praise God. 
here and now, today, or, or whether we let kind of temporal things steal our joy. Reminding ourselves of our mortality, of this limited time that we have, it should draw us back to the gospel. The hope found there, the hope that just as, as Paul was, was spelling out for these guys, Jesus is real. He died to free us from the grip of death and fear. He rose again to give us hope. He ascended, and ultimately, he is coming back. Things will be better, dare I say, even ideal for our idealists. We're bringing it back. But let's not just wait for that, you know? Let's have an urgency to love more and more, to provide the hope that we have that we have found in Christ, that we have all, I mean, we're not, for the most part in this room, baby Christians. We've been doing this for a while. And I think that there is, um, there's a power in coming back to this. I think that um, we can use that reminder and that urgency uh, to maybe not swing all the way back to, to where we have an issue of Jesus' coming soon. Um, but that, that, should, that should put a fire in us. Let's let that truth penetrate our hearts again. Let's set our eyes on Christ and ask him this week to help us see this world through that lens. The lens of hope, the anticipation. Let that spark a renewed passion for the gospel in us. And what it means to us, our family, our friends, and ultimately this world. Like if you think about <clears throat> if you think about these things intentionally, it can't help but kind of rewire you. If you take that time to kind of center yourself on the idea that this, this stuff is real, that in the end it is good, I think that that can inspire us to, to reach out, to, to live differently. Um, and that's pretty much what we have there. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word that you reach uh, through these pages by your spirit to touch us. God, that you uh, sent people like Paul into broken parts of the world, that you, um, you call us to do similar, that we can... Um, we can use these, these passages to grow closer to you, God, to inspire us uh, <clears throat> to truth, to the gospel, to the beautiful work of Christ on the cross and what is still in process. Help us to play our role in that. Help us to, to see you more clearly. Help us to, to see in light of your coming in light of the hope that you offer us, how we can reflect that back to those around us. You're beautiful. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.